Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Trav. This is Amber. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast, your podcast of exploring strange new worlds, of seeking out new life and new civilization, and boldly going where no podcast has gone before. And to help us this week, we have questions from our fans on Facebook. John, what's our first question? Actually, it's from one of my new players, Paul Nunes. Uh, he goes by the uh, handle of Army Sergeant because he used to be in the Army. And uh, he's actually posted uh, several questions about various things dealing with Fringeworthy. Been responding to them in the forum, so we, they'll give us a good jumping off point to cover some of, these, some of the topics and also the implications of some of the, of the questions that he's posed. Paul's first question is, can two primes be joined by one alternate world? He then gives an example of Earth Prime and Victoria Prime being joined by an alternate world that has, I would say, two alternate gates on it. And the answer to that one is, unfortunately, no, uh, officially, one alt, one gate. But that I would say that really is up to the GM to decide at this point. Yeah, you'd be going severely off-canon if that that case because of... You know, each Prime already has eight portals leading to the same platform. And you'd be connecting the two... The only way that two Primes are connected are by the pathways leading to their alternates and the alternates linking each other but between the two nodes. I think that what he doesn't realize is that each Prime exists in a different universe. And therefore, the alternates are the alternate of the prime. The system platform that's for, is the next platform out are, are all different locations in the prime solar system. And the star platforms that are even further out are all to different stars that are within 40 light years of the prime. So the prime really is the touchstone for everything. So to connect two primes together through another prime's alternate would be a huge inter-universal connection. The alternative that I could see would be if you had two primes in the same universe connected to the same alt. What you do with the system platform and the star platform after that, I'm not quite sure. If they were in the same solar system, that might make a little more sense. But the reason that they're set up this way, according to the game canon, is that the fringe paths were designed to be as stable as possible. And so this particular configuration is the most stable and energy conservative. Because when you have all these connections, yeah. like, was it 64 portals altogether or 32 on the same node? So they're all interconnected to the same universe. So you only have one actual connection to the next universe, that one little thin pathway going from the alternate to the next. And that's a pretty energy conservative thing to do. And considering, John, what is the energy output of a platform? What does it take to power a platform again? And you mean a warp, a, a portal. 
a, a black hole. No, it's not a black hole. Oh. It's two black holes. Two black holes, you're right. And a like a neutron star. Yeah, that's what I, I was referring to. You're already having to use a lot of power to run this thing, so yeah, you're not going to want to put relatively too much of a strain on it, and granted the scale of this is pretty big, but still, you're wanting to not let things get out of control, so you're going to try to find the most expedient way to do so. No, I, wonder, I think you guys may have got a little misunderstanding there. He was asking if, if two can be joined by one alternate world. So say, and for convenience, say it's a pocket stop, but there's two gates. Gate goes to Earth, Earth, Earth Prime's node, and the other gate goes to Victorian Prime's node. Is that possible? It's still pretty much the same idea. Yeah. All you're doing is, is putting an intervening pocket stop between them. I'm not saying you can't do it, but what I'm saying is that if you do do it, I think that you should have all kinds of trouble on those two nodes. I mean, every one of the portals should be a trouble portal. I mean, you might have ones that are literally broken. There's one on the pathways where you go through and you see a roadway. It ends in like fire, and there's nothing but flaming plasma at the end of it. This is the kind of instability you should be creating by doing this. And as long as you're willing to do that and carry that concept through, I'm fine with it. There should be cause and effect, you know, yeah. consequence to disrupting the system from its normal configuration. Yeah. I would almost want to say that the greater the distance between the two nodes, the more trouble you're going to have. So just between Earth Prime and, and Earth and Victoria Prime, uh, not so much. Between Earth Prime and, say, something 50 nodes away, yeah, you can get a lot more problems because there's a lot more stress being put on the system at that point. Even though the fringe paths appear linear, it isn't linear. It's, it's really a big pile of soap bubbles, remember? That's true, but you know, I would say there's probably some sort of dimensional difference. There's the T-prime timeline, and there's a bunch of sprouts off of that. And some of those sprouts may lead to us, may lead to someone else. But if you have a different timeline, a parallel timeline, eh, then you might get some problems. Because they're not even in the same meta-universe. They're in different, totally different universes at that point. Meta-universes. So there could be a lot more strain that way as well. Is there an overarching timeline? I don't know. Some are time-retarded, time-accelerated. Some nodes you can do time travel, other nodes you can't. I don't know. Are, are, are we even certain that they're all at, traveling at the same speed time-wise? Amber, no, because there are certain Earths you can go to where time runs slower, time runs faster. Your Earth Prime might be modern day, and you'll go to a, another Earth via the fringe paths that it's Africa, 5th century. What I'm inquiring is, if you're traveling from different primes, and there's a, a time distortion between each realm, between each, each prime, then how does that affect travel, depending on how long you stay in one prime and then move to another one? Would time travel normally? Yeah. The front paths all have the same time speed duration. It has the same rate all the way through the entire fringe path as far as, as we've ever said in the game. We've never assumed that it was those kind of changes. It was only once you went world side that you had any kind of a possibility of a time flakiness going on. Yeah. Right. Kind of like, like with the Bangor Main, 
one year there is one day for us. That's that is a significant time distortion. Right. But is it that way for other primes, or does time travel at the same rate? I would say the time travels the same rate for the entire node, but not on the fringe path part of it. If you go through like a system platform portal to a, a like say their Mars, well, the time rate that's going on in the, on Mars should be the same as the time rate that's going on on their Earth prime. Okay. Now the alternates are allowed a little bit more variance. You can because basically you can do whatever you want to with the alternates, but they're all assumed to have somewhere near the same physics. Yeah, Victoria Prime physics seem to be a little bit different, but no one's quite sure how different yet. Once you figure that one out, then you can start determining how what technology from Earth Prime will function properly on, on Victorian Prime. Okay. You never know. Some things may not actually not function. You know, if you bring over a nuclear reactor, tell them to get some pitch blend, turn it into uranium. Doesn't work. Even though pitch blend will fog film on Victorian Prime, the nuclear fission may not actually function on that world. Well, yeah, that's the same rules that you have where if, if the mana level on a world is high, yet your tech level is low, you may end up having a fringe portal that goes to your tech, your D&D type world where, say, due to the laws of how the gods run things, technology cannot be above, oh, clockwork technology. The highest technology you could have is something with a flywheel or, you know, like crossbows with gears and cogs. But you can't have, like, steam tech and above. So you bring your nuclear reactor there, or you try to build a nuclear reactor on this world, and it's not happening. The laws of technology and nature don't support that level of technology. Your nuclear pile is a really good area heating source. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't cause enough power to run a steam engine. Right. Yeah. Radium still glows, but it glows for reasons other than the the uh, weak nuclear force causing radiation. What's our next question? It's actually several questions, but it, it, it sort of harkens back to when we talked about pregnant Frenchworthy going through the portal. Okay. Uh, Trav, you want to explain about women getting preggers and going through the portal? Okay, well, when a man and a woman get to... Oh, I'm sorry, it's a little too far back. Okay. Um, <laughs> the, the concept that when a pregnant woman goes through the fringe portal, boom, the fetus is automatically fringe-worthy. It automatically has that unknown energy signature that allows them when they are born to be able to use the fringe paths. And the reason is because the fringe path is trying to protect the life of the unborn child. Because otherwise, if it treated it as if it was a separate being from the mother, the way things normally are, when you go through a portal, if you're not fringe-worthy, then you just go through the other side and the mother would go on to the fringe path. Instant abortion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about complications, and depending on how far along you are in the pregnancy? If you're still early enough that it's still not even developed into an embryo or a fetus, then then how can we ascertain, I'm not even sure if that's the right word, how can we guarantee that it will become fringe-worthy if it's not even cluttered up enough to be a legitimate life form. The safe thing to do is to keep going through the portal periodically during your pregnancy. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, it's up to the GM to decide what, whether there is a point in which the system says, hey, uh, I'm recognizing uh, intelligence. 
Therefore, you are now going to be fringeworthy. See, now we're going to be getting into an area here that, you know... We, we just basically say that if you are pregnant and you go through the portal, then when you give birth, if you give birth, that your baby is going to, to be fringeworthy. And that we kind of leave it at that. Yeah. So his question, Paul's question is, can a fringeworthy woman be a surrogate mother for a non-fringeworthy parents? And the follow-up is, can a fringeworthy woman carry a fertilized egg through in her womb from a non-fringeworthy parent's Thus making the offspring now a fringe rate, which is basically the same, same question. Yeah. And the answer is absolutely true. Yes. As a matter of fact, that was kind of part of the idea behind that little thing I did in Infinite mm-hmm. Crossroads, where I had the guy in the UN standing up talking about the Chileans forcing women, fringeworthy women, into being, you know, broodmares, and that, you know, your womb would literally be for sale, that people would be offering all kinds of money for you to produce fringeworthy children for them, either through direct insemination with your eggs or for you to be a surrogate of a fertilized egg provided by another couple. Which leads into the next question. Would governments do this by pairing genius parents or Olympic athletes' parents to tip the scales of explorers more in their favor? That is eugenics. Would they practice eugenics? Since it's not known what causes fringeworthiness to appear in humans, all you're going to be getting is smarter and faster and stronger humans. That's not going to guarantee fringeworthiness. Oh, no, but, but these are the donor parents. Then you, you do an in vitro fertilization, and then you implant that embryo, or actually several embryos, into the woman, and hopefully one or more of them takes. Well, Amber, let's imagine you're a, the head of a totalitarian government over there. Oh, thanks. And you've got a couple of fringeworthy people in your country. How are you going to treat them? I'd probably treat them with a lot of respect because they're invaluable because they're rare. Okay. And so... I think that they would need a lot of protection. I don't want to say that it's their right because they happen to have this gift, but at the same time, because it is so rare, there are going to be people, you're going to be prone to rape, you're going to be prone to violence, they are going to be targets of people who are jealous, envious, or people who want to take advantage of what they have to offer. So I would think that it would be more trouble to have fewer. The more plentiful there are, the the less chance of a riot or any criminal-related issues. Do you think that, that you as the government would want to make sure that the chances of your fringeworthy and your fringeworthy's offspring be better at survival, theoretically, by deciding who those offsprings would be drawn from? I don't, I'm not a personal believer in intelligence being something that is passed on. It's something that's learned. But as far as basic physical survival, absolutely. The main thing I was thinking about was not so much of them engaging in eugenics, but merely octomom kind of stuff where, okay, we're going to ladle in eight or nine, four to eight fetuses or, you know, fertilized eggs in here. And hopefully they'll have twins and quit droplets and send them through the fringe portal. And then, you know, that we now have fringeworthy babies. And then a year later, let's try to do this again and again. 
Well, here's an interesting question for you. Uh, in regards to artificial insemination, if they become a surrogate parent and they are willing to take another woman's eggs and a man's sperm and then have the child in them within themselves when they go through the portal, bam, the child is suddenly fringeworthy. Do they have to keep the child in their womb until birth? Or now that the child is fringeworthy, can they transfer it back to another parent, possibly that- the original mother? And that leads to his follow-up question. In addition, could this fetus be re-implanted into another non-fringing woman and remain fringeworthy? That re-implantation, I looked it up, it's tricky. It is, once the egg fuses to the side of the uterus, it sort of, once it starts growing, it wants to stay there. You're along for the ride. It would have to be a very good reason to get it out of there. And, well, PL6 technology, Earth Prime's technology... PL6, it might be easier to do. Right now, current, our, our tech level is would be considered high PL5. Yeah, it's dicey. Just medical science isn't quite up to the task yet, and it would be risky as all get out. These are kind of academic-type questions because it's already very dangerous for even a healthy woman to have a child. All right, you know, it's, it's very stressful. And having twins is more more than doubles the risk for Mm -hmm. for the mother. So this kind of concept of, yeah, let's just ladle a whole bunch of eggs in there, and then after we've established that they're fringe-worthy, if they could, then we're going to pull them back out again and put them into another mother. I have a feeling that the end result would be less fringe-worthy produced than if they just let you know, nature take its course and, and that, that these women had babies that they wanted in a, in a fairly safe and, and occasional basis. Yeah. I think it also would probably lead to uh, accidental sterilization of the woman if you don't do the removal correctly. You may end up removing the uterus. A birth, it does change a woman. It does alter their body chemistry. It alters them physically, uh, like on a muscular and organ-based level. So, yeah, I mean, you're going to be putting this woman's body through all sorts of hell just with her carrying this child or children to full term. So then you're going to sit there and tinker around with that machinery more just on the possibility of gaining more fringe-worthy. That's just really dicey to, you know, just really risking your one fringe-worthy to do that. I mean, that, that would be somebody, if they're running this type of dark eugenics program they're not knowing what they're getting themselves into if they're just being that blasé about the lives of the women that they're trying to be make broodmares we were talking about this but i really think it's academic because if you really if you really think it through to the end you're going to find out that you've created so many uncertainties and so many dangers that these poor women are probably safer out on the fringe paths exploring than they are <laughs> staying home, you know, and being being used in this fashion. And I think that as your campaign goes along, by the time you had enough tech level to really make this a safe process, they'll have discovered ways of creating fringe-worthy people. Yeah. And so it'll all be, be moot. I mean, I think your rate of creating fringe-worthy people just by having the crystals, if once you learn about a tuning process... You'll produce fringe-worthy people faster and more reliably than by this technique that he's suggesting. Well, you go to your local Navy SEALs and say, here, hold this for five minutes. Okay, thank you. You hold it for five minutes. 
And that gives you a 1% chance every year of becoming fringeworthy. You just do it every year. It keeps upping the chance. Yeah, cumulative, yeah. 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 I, I still don't like that. I really think that you should have to carry that crystal. You know, it should be has to be attuned to you, not to everybody in, in, in creation. So you're occasionally handling it, but you're still possession of it. But that's me. That's what I want. Other people, yes, it is a way of producing a lot of fringeworthy once you learn about that. If you have 100,000 people hold the crystal for five minutes in a year, that means that you're going to end up with... A thousand fringeworthy. Yeah, a thousand fringeworthy, yeah. which is a lot of fringeworthy the next year. And then the next year you get uh, 999 fringeworthy, and it just keeps on going on. You only have to do it once. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm just saying is there are better ways of creating fringeworthy experiment. Yeah, you can do this. All these things are possible. If a baby's fringeworthy... And then you can take it out of the womb and put it into somebody else because the baby is fringeworthy. It's not the mom making him fringeworthy. Yeah. Now, that does bring up his next question. Okay, so we don't want to deal with surrogate moms. What if I have a Petri dish with a growth medium and 100 embryos in it and I walk through? What happens? Now, this can get dicey because, as, as Amber pointed out, at what point is those embryos viable and people? To the system. To the system. Because remember, we're talking about the fringe system is making this decision, not you. At what point are they gone too far past being implantable and being recognized by the system? Because at some point, they're either just going to be this little nice little collections of genetic material, and then they're going to be people. I would say that the system would say, uh, that's not the proper configuration for a developing fetus. I don't consider that to be something I need to worry about. Yeah. If you had that Petri dish inside of a woman, I don't know. Oh, that would hurt. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, yeah, see, yeah. If you got the embryos to the point where they would be would be recognized by the system as being uh, of a sentient race, do you walk through with a Petri dish and have a pile of dead embryos on the other side of the, of the, of the warp because they didn't go through? But why would that happen? They're people now. They're people, but they're not fringe-worthy. So you're going to drop the, the Petri dish. Is that what you're talking about? No, no. Petri, I'm still holding the Petri dish, but they don't go through. But I'm saying, what? so what? You're going to drop it on the other side, and the portal's going to say, oops, that was my fault? That's a good question. I don't think the system is is that. It doesn't care about us. I mean, it just follows this programming. I know, but, but how is that different than those same embryos at the same point in time were inside, inside a woman? They would become fringe-worthy. Right. But, but they don't become fringe-worthy if they're in the Petri dish. I think it may have something to do with the organic <laughs> nature of reproduction. If they're in a Petri dish, Petri dish it, it is artificial. You may have hundreds of thousands of potential embryos, but it's still an artificial means of growth. Okay. Uh, okay, well, then we could go this route. Let's say instead of a Petri dish... Let's say it's in the late campaign, it is some form of organic technology that you can carry these embryos in some type of container and just shuttle it through. It's with it, artificial womb, yes, thank you. Would that be viable for a means of making? And of course, by this time, if this were Earth Prime, it would be, I would say this would be at least PL7 technology. Would that be a viable means of, okay, we have these embryos, we have this organic artificial womb, we put it on the dolly and walk it through the portal. Boom, we now have, you know, basically you're doing creche-type child creation here. This is genetics 
on a mass scale. Yeah. This is using cheat codes. <laughs> yeah. Well, essentially, what you're what you're doing is if you can convince the system, okay, that this is a a, a viable you know fetus, okay, that is of an intelligent species, and that the passage through the portal itself would put the fetus in direct harm, then. I would say yes, it would do something about it. But you know, you, we're literally uh, gaming the portal here. The system might just very well say, you know, I think someone's trying to bypass my security systems. I think I'm going to get even more restrictive than I was before. And then all of a sudden, now it's not doing what it was doing before. Now it is aborting fetuses. I would think that if it was a viable woman with a life form inside of her, you could go in, go through the portal, and make your child fringeworthy a lot sooner than you could with an artificial means. I would think that the fetus would need to be more developed artificially for the system to recognize it as an intelligent life form. Because yeah. it's not associated with a mother host. Oh, so you're saying that if you were going to do that, you like GM Fiat say, okay, well, if you're going to do this with the organic technology to make the artificial womb, the fetus has to be this far along in order for if you want to kick out fringe worthy that way. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. If, right. If second you want trimester, yeah. The system to recognize them as viable life forms and not a. We're just kind of throwing stones at the wall and seeing what sticks. And there's one other possibility, and that is that we know that when you go through the portal, the portal does a scan of you, and it actually gets into your head and is able to do things like change your ability to use memory. It could simply go and say, look, this woman knows she's pregnant. I better make sure her baby's okay. Otherwise, if she doesn't know, it doesn't care. Yeah, but then that that's the portal gaming us. <laughs> well, yeah. This is a huge yeah. unknown. You know, we don't know what the portal cares about. All we know is its displayed behavior. I would think that if the portal senses that oh, this woman just walked through and she has a fertilized egg in her. Guess what? There are now two fridge-worthy beings going to I would think the portal would just pick that up whether the woman knows or not. There's different ways of looking at this, okay? Yeah. And we don't know why the portal does what it does. We just simply said that that's what it does. Yeah. We're trying to deduce the inner logical workings of an alien device made by people that look like a cross between a bear and a dog and uh, a monkey. Yeah. <laughs> The way I'm thinking of it is, it's kind of going on what you're saying. If the portal looks at the woman and says, she knows she's pregnant and it checks on the fetus, it knows that there is a an infant there, that there will be a child. Whereas if you're using an artificial means, it doesn't have the, the host, the mother, to go off of to know that these are going to be babies. So I would think that if you're going artificially, they would, be need, they would need to be developed enough to have brain function of their own so they can be recognized as a life form. Like I said, it's like second trimester uh, fetuses. Yeah, actually, something yeah. around there. So it really comes down to how would... Would you, would you, as the GM, want the Fringe Portal to deal with this question? Your campaign can be different than you know my campaign or anybody else's campaign. Actually, I got to throw in a third way of, of gaming the system because this came up in the in the forums. There is a fellow out in Reno 
who's been making sheep-human chimeras. That is, he's produced sheep that actually had human blood, had human livers inside them. Well, you know what? Not too hard to figure out to give the, those sheep human universes. And then you implant the, implant the embryos in the sheep. And you watch the sheep through the portal, because as long as a fringe-worthy is touching them, they're fringe-worthy. And so is whatever you're touching, I would imagine. So would the fetus at that point be turned into a fringe-worthy? Because the sheep's going, I'm pregnant. <laughs> and it's a little sheepy mind. I'm not touching that. Well, no, if you have the fringe-worthy shepherd yeah. hand on the back of the sheep and they walk through together... It is conferring its fringe-worthiness onto that, and it's there for 10 minutes. Therefore, if the sheep, the artificial womb is in there, and it has the human's uterus, yeah, I would think it would still transfer because of the connecting fringe-worthy shepherd touching the sheep. Boom. Yeah, I would say then... Would it confer fringe-worthiness on a permanent basis to that fetus, or would it have the same fringe-worthiness that's temporary, which the sheep has? Good point. I would think that on the fetus, yes, on the sheep, you got ten minutes. I'm not touching that one. Yeah, me neither. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he he did bring up about putting a fetus in a Demixie egg sac, but we have to point out Demixie egg sacs are not harmed whatsoever by not going through the portal. So, yeah. sorry, you put it into a mixy egg sac, it stays on the world side of the ring, so it never goes through. Yeah, if you're just carrying your spawn on you, it doesn't qualify. It's, it's the same as you had somebody pick a back on you and you were walking through, he'd just drop on the other side. There has to be a much more intimate connection. The uh, chief. They're marsupials. They're marsupials. Like kangaroos, which means the embryo is only in the womb for a short period of time. Then the joey is in the pouch. So the question there is, they got a really short window to go through and, and make their embryos fringeworthy. But is it short enough? Are they too not developed enough for them to become, be made fringeworthy? Have they hit that certain threshold? Yeah. See, I, I would say that, you know, it would be unfortunate. The joey can survive for a period of time outside of the womb long enough for the mother to go, wait a second, I'm missing something. You can go back through the portal and collect her, her child. See, I don't see the portal as protecting that baby. It's the situations where literally if it was to remove that baby, it would die within seconds. Yeah. Or it should. And that's where I personally draw the line. If the baby's going to die immediately if you do that, well, then it's going to consider that as something that maybe it needs to do something about. Oh, you know, that's just inter- interesting because this is a little bit of trivia from science fiction. If you're familiar with Larry Niven, he has a race called Puppeteers. Well, it was revealed in Ringworld Engineers mm. that Puppeteers have a male and female species, but they both inject their genetic material into a third non-puppeteer host to gestate and, and you know, rip its way out and, and get, get bored. If a puppeteer brought on their baby holder <laughs> through the ring, would the puppeteer become fringeworthy at that point? Did the baby puppeteer become fringeworthy or not? Hmm. All the same question, John. Whatever method you have of producing children, if the fringe path transit will cause that child to be instantly killed or placed mm-hmm. in massive danger then the system, by our definition, would try to protect the child's life by conferring fringeworthy, if that would make the difference. Okay. 
that's how I would go with it. But I mean, yeah. you, know, you could be as draconian as you like in your campaign. Yeah. Parthenogenesis, where the species splits. Literally, they grow a pod or something, and that pod develops into a new being. That is basically cloning in for all aspects. Would that clone be fringeworthy? No, not any more than your uh, identical twin would be fringeworthy. Even though it's being growing out of a fringeworthy person. The babies can come out of a, a woman's womb who wasn't fringeworthy to begin with, and one could be fringeworthy and the other one wouldn't be. Yeah. I mean, that's just the way it is. It's just that randomized aspect of it. Okay. You know, we, we want to make sure we hit all the bases here. <laughs> uh, well, well, let's, so let's change topics radically. Please. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, new question. Uh, this is from again from Paul. His next question is, doesn't fringe weather affect things on the bottom of the fringe path and, by analogy, the bottom of the platforms as well? And I would say, and I think, Bruce, you agreed with that one, the answer is yes, but not to the same degree as one would expect. Am I, am I correct in that? Right, because the fringe weather moves along the fringe paths. It's constantly being redeposited up on the top of the platform as it goes through a portal because there are no portals on the bottom side of the platform. And so once that happens, then the, the weather has to spread around the platform from that spot. If it sits there for an hour raining frogs, well, I guess it will probably rain frogs on both sides by then. Yeah, if you're thinking about hiding stuff on the bottom of a platform, first off, the bottom of the platform sucks. Literally, the air is going into the bottom of the platform. To, so anything you put there will be pretty well held in place. But if a French storm comes along, it's going to go get underneath there and it might scar it off or at least cover it in frogs. There's a constant breeze blowing down and out because of the yeah. gravity shear on the edge of the platform. It causes yeah. air to rotate inward into the gravity and then down and then it's forced out by more air coming down. So these weather patterns are also going to be controlled by this as well. So the fringe weather is fairly autonomous, weirdly, because <laughs> it can move on its own and it can do whatever it wants, but it's still going to be, it's just, it is air of a, of a sort, unless it's an electrical or memory storm, it's still going to be blown around by that wind. So if it can be blown to the bottom side, it will be blown to the bottom side. Okay, we have this idea of this nice fluffy cloud, let's say, coming through the portal and running around and going off to another way. Uh-uh, it's not like that at all. Because if we assume that this cloud is keeping itself somewhat into a certain amount of volume, when it has to go through that portal, all of that volume has to suddenly accelerate down and through that portal to get to the other side. So where it might be just going along at a nice 20-mile-an-hour thing down the fringe pass, suddenly it's going 50, 100 miles an hour through that fringe portal. So you could be standing on the other side of that pathway portal, and suddenly this blast of something just comes roaring out, just knocks you head over tea kettle. That's a wall of frogs that just came through the portal at you. Yeah, you're basically getting hit with hurricane-force wind all of a sudden as this is coming through the portal. Portal. It's raining sideways. Yeah. If you're on a platform, fine. If you're on a pathway, you might end up in free fall. Those choke points are going to suffer some amazing uh, atmospherics. Pray you're not on a pathway when a gravity storm comes on through. 
Oh. Yeah, because you can find yourself going, throw on, throw a rope, jump, grab hold of the pathway. Otherwise, we're, we're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> At least they're 41 feet wide now. When they were eight feet wide, you were really in trouble. Yeah. Because they last for D4 minutes. You're floating around in zero G for D4 minutes. One person in four will end up demonstrating that they have motion sickness. Right, but you're not just floating, John. You have that air coming down and out. So suddenly you turn around, you're floating out away from the platform toward uh, energy interface that holds the atmosphere in, and it's not going to stop you. You can go right through that. There's a good reason to keep yourself tethered as much as possible when you're actually on the pathways. Unless, of course, your entire vehicle is now floating off the pathway, and that's even worse. <laughs> you may want to consider to keep the pathway guides. Now, back in the day when, when you had eight-foot-wide pathways and your vehicles were eight-foot-wide, you would have these little training wheels that come on down and lock under the uh, pathway and hold you in place. Well, okay, now it's 41 feet wide. But you know what? You can still have those guides on the outside wheel, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Clip down and at least hold one wheel in place, and hopefully you don't skid off in that direction. You just have to aim the wheel slightly to the left, you know, what they call toe in, you know, and that way it keeps pushing those rollers against the side of the fringe pass. Unless, of course, you're Victorian, then you got to steer it to the right. But anyway, yeah. Well, yeah, okay, because you're on the left hand side of the pathways. I got you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the reason that the pathway guys were originally created was because people were so scared to drive fast on an eight-foot-wide pathway, even though that's really the same width of a normal lane on a highway. I mean, people travel down those at 70, 80 miles an hour, but nobody wanted to do that. They were driving at 20, 30 miles an hour, and they said, well, we'll just go and put these things down, and now that we're locked down, you know, we're on rails now, so we can drive 100 miles an hour if we want to. I also think they were cre- they were created because you also would get people who would fall under road hypnosis. Yeah. And you're driving along a straight, featureless pathway. Eventually, someone's going to nod off at the steering wheel. But it's not featureless, John. You've got all those stars out there that are moving. You know what? I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the road surface, and there's stars moving. Yeah, but I'm actually prone to road hypnosis. And you can have all the trees you want to go on by. I can't go more than two hours in a row before I have to pull over and rest. Otherwise, I'll pass out. Okay. (laughs) That's where you have the uh, slorg sitting behind you and slapping you against the back of your head every five minutes or so just to keep you you going. (laughs) No, everyone else is sound asleep in the back of that thing because this is the only time to get to sleep. If you suffer from road hypnosis, John, I'm sure somebody would be watching you. Yeah. On to the next question. This is a question with our favorite, favorite creature in, in Fringeworthy, the Meller. All right. Uh, have Meller been known to employ agents, human, Kegak, old men, whatever? Agents who, while accepting of the Meller coin, may be completely unaware they serve a Meller. The Meller seem more sinister as a Moriarty with a, with a uh, millennia of job experience. I would say, yeah. Oh yeah, the higher level ones are the power behind the throne. They're going to employ all sorts of people to do stuff for them. Oh, especially master mellers. Yeah. 99% of master mellers are sterile. They need people to help them to destroy their culture and their world. So you you will have quizlings. You will have a red crew on occasion. Mellers get hungry, and they don't eat uh, McDonald's Happy Meals. 
I'm human and I don't eat those anymore. What's your point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Miller requires something a little bit more substantial. Yeah, always people who can disappear from the streets (laughs) and not be noticed. Oh yeah. And depending on who the Miller is, he might look at his own, or he may have to order out. Anything that is a high Miller or above is going to want to leverage other people for its own protection. It's not just because it wants to be a mastermind. It, you know, it knows that you know, it's an alien. It's an alien in another culture that might be extremely xenophobic. So it's maintaining its masquerade. The best way to maintain your masquerade is never to be the person that people are looking at. Oh, yeah, you're going to need patsies. I mean, let's say they are kidnapping. Oh, the Mellor's kidnapping homeless people. Well, at the very least, then, the Mellor's going to be smart enough to say, hey, you know what, this guy over here that I enlisted, yeah, he's the one that's going to take the fall if something goes wrong, and it can't be traced back to me. Yeah, every Fagan needs his Oliver Twist, his uh, Jack, to work for him. Every Dracula needs a Renfrew. Yeah, especially if it's a Master Miller. Yeah, he definitely has people working under him, but he's also working under whoever he's manipulating, so to speak. He's the Rasputin to the Tsar Nicholas. He's the Eva Brown to the Adolf Hitler. person you wouldn't think is the real power behind the throne. Yeah. The Meller, they want to destroy you. They want to destroy your civilization. They want to turn you into screaming, bleeding husks, okay? But if they can get you to do it for them, well, that's just, you know, icing on the cake. That's just cat and mouse, the Meller sitting there going, I'm not only going to send you to hell, I'm going to make you like the trip. You're going to be the conductor. (laughs) And you're going to build the road and then lay the rails. That's why they're willing to spend hundreds of years to set these things up. Oh, yeah. Going back and forth, being different people, being Cardinal Richelieu here and being someone else someplace else and seeing religious dynasties that lay around will inflame into a jihad or a crusade, whichever way you want to go with those. Right. Uh, But his next question is, and I think it's a very important one, because we have alluded to it before, do Miller kill each other? Do they have their own political intrigues, tribal power struggles, and Machiavellian plots for power in a Miller hierarchy? Can it be the infighting between powerful Miller has diverted resources and inhibited Miller expansion? Miller have control over those that are lower than they are. That they have spawned. No, any, any Meller that are lower lower generation than they are that are within a certain range of them, they control. Oh, okay. I just thought it was like, okay, Master Miller A and Master Miller B each have spawned their own branching off of Mellor. I did not think that Mellor A could control Mellor B's minions. I did not think that. This is so, like I just told Amber. I've been working with Tritech now for a decade, and I'm still learning stuff. So, okay. The description in the book says they control any lesser Meller within a certain range. Therefore, it doesn't matter what the source of the Meller, they can control them. What they don't control are Meller that are their level or higher. Yeah, so if you have a cabal of high Meller, one of them's in charge. You almost guarantee that. But how he got him to be in charge, that's the fun bit. The only thing I really remember about the Melor is Trav telling me that they were bad, bad, bad people who thought (laughs) that 
telling an entire species that they were a joke or yeah. something. Oh, the Kegak. Yeah, yeah, the whole yeah. Kegak thing. So here's the scenario, Amber. You have yourself a great meller. And he has a whole bunch of high meller underneath him, okay? And they're all posing as various people. And all of a sudden, some guy in the other place says, hey, I have this idea. Let me assassinate that guy over there. Or let me do an act of terror by assassinating that guy over there. And they kill the master meller. Now you've got a whole bunch of underlings that have nobody over them. What happens? Uh, I would to think that they would be pretty upset right. at being controlled and they would revolt against the people higher than them. But there is no one higher. Now they're all the same level. Who's in charge? And they're all chaotic evil. <laughs> I think then it would be a duke out between all of them fighting until they admit someone is better. Or until they die. Right, until they die, because none of them are going to sit there and admit that anyone else is better. There are all these... Megalomaniac is an easy term to remember. How concerned are they for self-survival? If they're fighting to the death, is there any possibility any of them, for the sake of preserving their own life, are going to say, I yield? No. Uh, Only if they got a backup plan. If they're going to sit there and go, I yield, and back away and let somebody else do something, it's usually because they've got something in reserve that they're going to hit their enemy with later. Okay. Then I would see them fighting each other until only one was left. What we're not bringing into this equation is is that these guys aren't just a bunch of guys standing around, you know, like a bunch of thugs surrounding a a mafia Dawn, and the Dawn gets killed, and those guys like saying, well, I want to be the Dawn, so bang, bang, bang. They may all have their own plans. They're over other things. They're controlling humans and and other creatures, and they may have a whole network of things they got in motion. So it'll just be a confrontation if they happen to cross each other. Right. Well, they may be invested in those things enough that they might be able to restrain their homicidal tendencies as long as they don't get too mad. Having the boss get cacked is going to make them all pretty mad. So that's pretty much a powder keg going there. I wouldn't think their boss getting killed would make them mad. I think they'd find it an, an opportunity. Well, yes, there's that. But they also, someone's got to be in charge. And might as well be me. Yeah. That's, you know, that's one of the problems right there. Yeah, and here's the kicker. Let's say all these high Mellor are, okay, they all have their own power structures, and they were beholden to this Master Mellor. This Master Mellor gets killed. You have all these high Mellor. They have all their own hierarchies. If they're going to be duking it out to see who's going to be the top dog, congratulations, they're going to start world wars and jihads and crusades because they're going to be sending all their forces against each other, which means they're going to be humans fighting each other and they're not even going to be realizing what they're truly fighting for. And don't forget, the Master Meller, or the the Meller who is above them, may have had his own hierarchy, so at least one or two of them are thinking, I want to take over his hierarchy as well as keep my own. If I can take over his hierarchy by, you know, taking on the persona of the person he had originally who got cacked for ease of discussion. It was a mafia Don. So, but luckily a high Miller number two has the memories and DNA of, of that mafia Don. So he becomes that mafia Don and takes over that power structure as well. 
depending upon how long it's been since that happened. It could be a hundred years since he was spawned. You know, he may even want to introduce the Dom to, to the great Miller, but along the way, shook his hand and got a sample. Most higher Miller, they'll just sap a point of con to get the skills and memories and the form. They're not going to sit there and kill right away. And here's the thing. Master Miller's killed. Master Miller was in the form of a Mafia Don. The Mafia Don that was introduced to that Master Miller was also sampled by a High Miller. Master Miller gets killed. High Miller takes over the form of the Mafia Don. Those other High Miller are going to know full well that's not the Master Miller posing as the Don. That's another High Miller. Genetic sensing of the hierarchy of Miller are going to realize we're being played. That's not our boss. That's one of our peers trying to get one over on us. And then the fight started, as they say. Yeah. It's never going to be pleasant. I mean, if it's just low, low, like Mafia Don's, you have a city in, in a gang war. Yeah. If it's people behind the throne in various governments, you get wars. Yes. That's a matter of scale, then, depending on how big these Melor have infiltrated into this planet's governmental and military infrastructure. And these Melor, they reproduce an exact duplicate of themselves within 48 hours. All they have to do is take a host body and put a genetic capsule in, and now you've got Tweedledee. He's exactly as you are. And at which point you could send him off to go and kill the other Meller if you wanted to. He might very well turn around and say, well, I'm just as good as you are. You go off and kill him if you want to. You know, I mean, it's, it's a really crazy situation where there's two of us. We'll gang up on the third guy. It's usually what the idea is going to be. Yeah, and it lasts about as long as you think it would. <laughs> one of us dies, then the other guy can con- the other one of us can continue with our plans. So now I'm free to go and engage in the the winnowing. Of course, eventually it's going to come down between me and you because we're really exactly the same, and one only one of us is going to be able to survive. And says, but that's for the future. We can deal with that later after we get rid of these other upstarts who think they are in charge or worthy of being in charge. Of course, if I was the you know the the high Miller who became the Mafia Don, makes a contact with the contract killer and say, "Here's people I want you to kill." They're all doing that. That high Miller that takes over the Don's form, he's going to immediately use his guys to sit there and you know the the Master Miller's hierarchy. He's going to take that over and he's going to entrench himself, saying, "Okay, you know what? This attack was made on my life." Because he's going to make it look like he was injured and, you know, got out of it. He's going to sit there and say, okay, all of you, you're surrounding me. Anybody tries to get at me because they think I'm dead, wipe them out. So it's going to be, this high Miller is going to, he's not be stupid. He's a higher level Miller. He has reasonable intelligence, if not above human intelligence, to make it where If anyone's going to try to make a power play, they're going to get wiped out anyways. He's going to save his own hide. He's going to plan in a Machiavellian style to make sure that, yeah, they may know I'm not our late boss, but they're not going to get me. If you're talking about a great Meller over a bunch of high Meller, the high Meller are only average human intelligence. Therefore, once the boss is going, now you've got a turf war, as you said. 
snipped off the head of the the octopus and all the the middle operatives and you know the guys that are on the street running their own gangs they're all going to just start having it out now where it gets real fun is when you have two master miller realize they're on the same planet that's where the fun world starts at that point. That's where you get war. That's where you get nuclear wars happening. I was, I would imagine, or at least world wars happening at that point. Well, yeah, because these mass color megalomania is just off the charts. Now, say that the master Miller, okay, he visits this world and finds out there's some master Miller there. Oh yeah, he's going to try to take over. He's not going to sit there and go, oh okay, well he's here. Oh, I'll go somewhere else. No, 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 no. The ego of the Master Miller is going to be like, hey, look, you need to go. Let me facilitate that for you. And so we have the war. And the Master Miller is not going to do it right away. He's going to infiltrate and get his own power structure going. He's going to get a lay of the land and go, okay, this guy's controlling over here. Oh, look, this rival government needs strong leadership. I think I shall assume the role. And then he's going to have the war because he's going to start manipulating the other Master Mellers, excuse me, he's going to start manipulating the Master Mellers' enemies. He's not just going to start trouble right away. No, Master Miller not that brash. And also, if any of the other Master Mellers, sub-Mellers, get anywhere near him, he just goes, you're mine. Thank you. Come over here. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> right. Can't right. use their own sub-Meller to do the battle. They have to do the battle themselves, or at least use humans. Yeah, they're going to as, use the- as As your intermediaries. So the answer to the question is is that not only do the high Meller uh, or the master Meller use human underlings, every Meller up and down the food chain is going to use human operatives when, uh, or alien or whatever the species is on the planet is, uh, uh, operatives, because that's how they protect themselves from their, uh, their brethren should the situation ever arrive where they need to. Oh, yeah. It can get, it can get real sticky. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Amber. It's all fun and games until the DM rolls a one. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be having your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.